Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Hope you're having an amazing holiday. I'm really grateful for all of you. You're amazing for the past decade, how incredible you've been and how impactful you have made this show because without you, this show is nothing, nothing at all. I'm very, very grateful. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram or at BarryKatz.com. Just send me a message and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And I thought I'd do something very special over the holidays. I thought I'd do a special two-part compilation show of the best of the people that we've lost since I interviewed them throughout the last 10 years. I know you're going to love these episodes because these were some of my favorites of all time. And I truly, truly am blown away by the impact that all these people have had on me, a lot of you who are listening, and the world. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. And thank you so much for listening. All right, everybody, I'm very excited about the show today. It's going to be really exciting about just everything that these people have to say that are no longer with us, but have left an indelible mark on my life and all of yours and the world's. I can't think of a better way to start this out than with a guy who started his career <laughs> working on the Joey Bishop show, the Dick Van Dyke show, the Danny Thomas show, and the Lucy show. He went on to adapt Neil Simon's Play the Odd Couple for television, then went on to work on his own and with others, creating Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and Mork and Mindy. He went on to either write, direct, produce, or do all three in many, many great films including The Flamingo Kid, The Beaches, Pretty Woman, The Princess Diaries, Valentine's Day, and New Year's Eve. Ladies and gentlemen, I was fortunate enough to sit down with this man in my office, and I'll never forget it, because not only was he incredibly inspirational, but I'm humbled to know that it was the last interview that he ever gave a man that inspired millions, Gary Marshall. Your wife went to 18 premieres of your movies. Yeah, and two extras I did where I produced. Look at that, yeah. 20. My so God. 20 movies she went to and sat next to you. She learned how to lie to other people for the business, but she's not going to lie to you. Tell us the movie that you made out of those 20 where she turned to you afterwards alone and she said, not good. She sometimes say not good sections, but she always learned, see, I, you gotta be honest with your mate. And it helps if you try, you know, okay, uh, sexual, wow, 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 and the religion, wow, 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 but it's what bugs you. And my mother, I love my mother, she gave me my sense of humor, she didn't, really respond well 
to presents and never complimented. You know, I gave her a present. Flowers, they'll die in two moments. Who cares, flowers? <laughs> what is, why'd you spend your money on this? Oh, okay, that wasn't so good, you think? So I told my wife, I like, first you say something nice, then you say, what was that scene over there? But I don't think in 20 times she said, that was garbage. There was one close. That, I, I did a movie called The Exit to Eden. That really wasn't one of my hits. But she said, that was a little odd, but if that's what you want to try, try it. But she never truly was uh, totally negative about anything. She'd say something is not nice to say. I don't mean cursing, but something is, uh, that'll offend somebody. But not much. She's always been there for me. And when your kids are little, they don't know what the hell you're doing. You can just get so, you know, I remember Danny Thomas, you know, a great man for me, helped me. I wrote a monologue for one of his specials, and he tore, ripped it in little pieces. He ripped it in little pieces in front of you. Yes, and threw it, and said, no good, do it again. And then I remembered, brought back this memory where when I was at the stage deli giving guy a page of jokes, one comic took the page and lit it on fire with his cigarette lighter. And it was my first flaming rejection, but he just flamed it into the garbage. So it reminded me, I said, oh, I'm back there again. But then the head writer there told me, come here, schmuck, over here. He said, look out the window. I said, he ripped it up the whole mother. He said, look out the window. You see, there's men with hard hats on girders walking around up there. You're not up there. You're here in an office. There's a donut, there's coffee. There's something, you're going to go home and the end of the day, you see your wife? He says, so what, he ripped it up. You got a good job, stay with it, rewrite it. And I did rewrite it, but I always, sometimes when I get really, oh, I'm getting depressed, I said, look, I'm out there, look, I'm here, I'm with Barry Katz here in a nice room and we're talking. It's the same thing what you said about there's the times where you push the rock up the hill but also there's equally the times when you're walking down the hill and noticing what's around you. You got to remember that. It's hard sometimes. A lot of things uh, you know, go wrong, but uh, my grandpa, he taught me the power of nice. There is a power of nice. And he told me, you do the, well, we do that nice. I, Why are we doing that? Well, because you know, he, we, he took me to ball games. We'll get a better seat. We'll get a fudgical. Fudgical means a lot when you're six and seven. Now it's still not bad. <laughs> but I, I think part of it is uh, sometimes, it sounds so corny to say, but sometimes if you're nice to somebody, something good happens. There's nothing bad that can come of being nice. There's nothing bad that can come of writing a handwritten thank you note. There's no. nothing bad that can come at the end of the party instead of leaving the party and not saying goodbye. There's nothing bad that can come of shaking the person's hand who invited you and thank them and hugging them. There's nothing bad that, that can come of that. No. But everything bad can come of not being nice, yeah. not doing the right I thing. I can't uh, disagree with that. I do, even uh, even though it takes time. The, can I... When you go to parties a lot, the thing is, I would bring my wife. My wife's not in the business, so they say, 
Gary, how are you? And they take my wife's hands. Hi, how are you? And they just go like, right, bye. And, you know, and I noticed they do that not just to my wife, everybody, the other mate. So I do make a whole uh, thing about saying hello to people. I, I have this technique that I do, which is weird. If I bring somebody, whenever I go to meet somebody, I put them on the other side of me so no one can ever do that. Ah. They have to reach past <laughs> me to say hello to them. Well, that's good because they do that all the time. Yes. All the time. And, and it, it's one of my favorite people is Anne Hathaway, a wonderful young girl. Now she's great. And I'm very good with 19-year-olds. Anne was 19. Julia was 19. The waitress downstairs was 19. <laughs> No, not but close, <laughs> close. But I didn't tell her I was married 53 years, by the way. But she had, she was up for the Oscar for Les Mis and a big party and everything. And I said hello and, you know, and Hugh Jackman, who I know, a nice fellow, I'm talking to them. But I know that in the corner is Anne's husband, Adam. Nobody's talking to Adam. <laughs> Except for Gary Marshall. I go, hey, Adam, how are you? Who knows the most important thing. If you think meeting your boss at a get-together and shaking your boss's hand and talking to him is important, it's not nearly as important than talking to his wife and taking her aside and spending time with her. Just say hello. And uh, it's, uh, it happens in every year. There's uh, so many uh, gay... Uh, things where the one partner is not a big shot, but you got to say hello. You know, so I believe in that. It, it's not the answer to success, but it, you sleep good at night. Yeah, well, that's one of the hardest things to understand when you're in any profession is, like you said, Danny Thomas could be argued a genius, okay? He got to the top of the mountain. He had his own show. And he's going up to you, a nice guy, and taking your monologue that you worked hours and hours and hours on and in front of you ripping it in pieces and throwing it down and basically get out of here, redo it. And he made it. So in our profession and in many professions out there, you're walking through the office and you're like, how did that guy get in the corner office? He's mean. He's nasty. He's cruel. And I want to get there but I don't want to be that person. So there's examples in every profession all around where these horrible people who have made it, and there's nice people that have made it. And so, like you said, it's just the choice. Yeah, but it's not quite as simple as that because sometimes people who are mean only mean for a second or because something's bugging them. So Danny was really nice to me, but that moment he was so nervous about the show that he was... But, I mean, I learned everything I learned from working with Lucille Ball, I taught to my sister Penny. But the first script I wrote for Lucille Ball, it, she wrote on it. I could sell it on eBay, make a fortune. She wrote, this is shit on the, in big letters. So it meant, please do better, rewrite. It's their way of encouraging you to better. But instead of writing, Gary, I'd like to make a request. Can we work on this, this, and this? Right now it's a B plus, but I want us to make this an A plus. Can we work together to do so? 
Instead, she wrote on it, this is shit. And you're supposed to interpret that as being what I just said. Because all people who are bosses, artists, actors, producers have no time to do that speech. You just said they should record it and just play it and leave the room. <laughs> It'd be better, but they have no time. So they do. And I've done it myself as a showrunner. No, no, there's no good. There's, we can't do crap or something. I don't write this or shit on anything. But I, I, I think that you go through it and you... I, I think I learned who does close to what you were saying. Not perfect, but close was Carl Reiner. Because Carl Reiner, I, I don't know if you mentioned, I wrote for the Dick Van Dyke show at the same time I was writing for Lucy. I was doing fine freelancing in those days. Jerry Bells and I. And he would, uh, he would not say that. He'd say, Boys, I, I think we could do better than that. And I learned from him. I say when I direct, as a director, I'll say, you know, we'll do a scene and the actor, it could be a star, just an actor, regular actor, but I treat everybody the same. And there was like a pause or something. They took a pause, which I say, everything was good, but during that one pause, I wrote a pilot, and I, I don't have to... Have another pilot. I, I got enough pilots, so let, let's do it one more time. And suddenly the pause is gone, you know. So I, I, you know, I remember saying Julia's favorite line is always Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts, we're working, and every time she asked me now, and we do do the scene once, and I said, you know, it's very good if we were going straight to video, and we may go straight to video. <laughs> Who knows? But let's try. Maybe we let's try one that might not go straight to video. <laughs> so even now, on Mother's Day, she said, "Was that a straight to video, Gary?" <laughs> I said, "No, we, we're okay." But uh, I mean, I think that way of working, Carl taught me that do with humor sometimes is better than saying this. <laughs> what would your advice be? For that young person to fight through it and to get to have the kind of career that you've had? I think you gotta do everything. You can't stay uh, in one spot. I, I One of my uh, pictures I got tremendous reviews was uh, nothing in common with uh, Tom Hanks and, and, and Jackie Gleason and uh, yet I couldn't say I'm a great director. I mean, you gotta be versatile. You gotta try to do everything. I don't want to shock anybody. It's a fickle business. So the more different jobs you can do, I ask all actors to try to write something, some or try to produce. Directing is difficult, but uh, they always say what I really want to do is direct. That's not a good way to go. What you really want to do is write or produce. But I say, do every job that comes up and see if you like it. That's my advice to anybody starting. It's don't quit, but do every job. My next featured person is a guy who I owe a lot to. He gave me my start in the business of television by allowing me to executive produce my first television show, Action, which was for Fox, starring Jay Moore. He's a unique person who really, really walk the line in many more ways than professionally. He worked on shows like Blansky's Beauties with Scott Baio, followed by Laverne and Shirley, Bosom Buddies, which he created, 
as well as the naked truth, ladies' man, action, and also working on the Larry Sanders show. His feature film credits include Jumping Jack Flash and Back to the Beach. But more importantly, he's a guy who did so many different things and touched so many lives and hired so many great, unique writers throughout his career. Hollywood is littered with some of the greatest talents in the history of our business who had a chance to work with him. A guy that was oftentimes misunderstood, but one of the most unbelievable creative geniuses that I ever met, Chris Thompson. So when you got notes, I've seen many different ways of people getting notes. I've seen Peter Tolan get notes from Jamie Tarsus and throw his script at her that hit her in the chest and fell to the floor. And he said, listen, why don't you just get another fucking writer? And I've seen other showrunners listen to all the notes and they have all these pages flipped and bent and oh, curled and written and the turned down pages. And I've seen the other showrunners go through the whole process of all the notes, nod, okay, yep, yep, okay. And the thing ends and I would take them aside and say, uh, I don't understand. You, you, you agreed with every note they had. And the person would say, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm not going to do all of them. I mean, what do you think? I'm going to change all the notes. What are they going to do? Fire me. I'm going to do it. And when they see it up and running and see the lines that I want in there to kill, I'll give them a few things, but I'm not going to get in an argument with them here. What's the well, point? How did you handle things? My my theory, which I which I learned over time, because I used to be a Tolan. I was a screamer. I once rolled up a script and hit a censor in the head with it. <laughs> but I, uh, um, but I, and I threw an ashtray and another, another one. But I used to be a screamer. But then I realized there are subtle ways to get what you want done. And have them think they've won also. And the thing that I most like to do is find the least objectionable note, the note that does the least possible harm, and praise it extravagantly. <laughs> Tell them it's the best note I've ever heard in my life. I can't believe it. The girl's shoes were red. You said they should be green. How did I miss that? What an idiot I was to put her in red shoes. Of course you should have green shoes. You're a genius. You deserve a bigger job than you have right now. Now get up. And that's and and that's that's what I learned to do. And and the other thing, like you talk about the other guys who just not, 80% of the notes they're not going to remember they came. You know, they're just they've got three other shows that they've got to go see run throughs at. You know, and they're uh, and they're giving notes at all at all those, and it's not going to be like you're going to have a if you have the network run day run through on Wednesday. It's not like on Thursday the same guys are going to be there saying you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't do this. They're off at another set somewhere. So, you know, I I I learned through bruising trials and getting a terrible reputation at times that I didn't have to be a screamer that I didn't have to be so confrontational. Um, Talk about your worst thing that ever happened to you in terms of a confrontation on a show. What were the circumstances? There was, 
I'm willing to name names too. There was a. Uh, you told me. Be, this is one thing you should know. Be, before Chris came here, it's very difficult to get a hold of Chris. Literally, it's like you're you're searching for a Bin Laden and you finally get him. But he told me when he finally reached me, he said, "Listen, venti latte, four sugars. I name names." There was an executive at ABC. He's still I don't know where he is right now. He still has a pretty good job. Named Ted Harbor. He's the chairman of NBC Universal. Right. Right. Now. right. Well, he had a similar job to that at the time, but he was just president of, of NBC Television. And I was doing a show called The Naked Truth. With Tay Leone. Tay Leone that I created. And I had taken a script that was a piece of shit that this one writer had, had, had written. I had taken it home and worked by myself uh, till 5 in the morning to get this script into shape, and I'd done a terrific job. I'd called in a favor. I needed a big guest star for something. I called in, I called in, I called Tom Hanks. I said, Tom, come down one day, do the show, you'll do me a solid. Chris, absolutely, do it for you in a second. So now I have, and this is 20 years ago, I have arguably the biggest star in the world in the show. We read the show at the uh, the first table read. Does he come to the table read? Yeah, Ted Harbert's at the table read because um, I think he's a little interested in Ted. But, um, but so Ted's at the table read, and we go through the script, we read through the script, and there's a 12-minute laugh spread. Normally a show would read, mm, let's say, 19, 20, 21 minutes. It stretches a little bit for the laughs that you hear from the people who are listening to it read. Stretches maybe two minutes, three minutes, a killer script, four minutes. This had a 12-minute laugh spread. It was, people were hysterical. Tom Hanks is in it. I'm feeling cocky as all get out. I go up, uh, Ted Harbert, the network is sitting there, come on over for notes. I sit down, I go, I don't know about you, Ted, but that's the funniest single table reading I've ever attended. And Ted Harbert said to me, Chris, is funny enough? And now I knew I was in trouble. I knew things were not going to go well from here on out. And I went, I went, well, it's good in a comedy. I know funny's very good. And he goes, well, I don't know. I go, well, well what's wrong? And he goes, I have a problem with the ending. And I said, Ted, what's, what's your problem with the ending? He goes, I don't think that's the ending that the audience expects. And I blow up. And I said, Ted, are you saying we're in danger of surprising the fucking audience? <laughs> <laughs> From then on, Ted didn't come to the table reads. <laughs> and I lost a lot of promotion on the show. I don't know. See, that's the other thing. It's another reason you usually have to be nice to the network guys because they control <laughs> how much promotion you get. Christopher Titus has a great story where he... He was in a meeting with uh, Gail Levin, and she comes into the meeting, and she says, listen, um, I want to bring in an actress to play your mother. And Chris says, do you even watch this fucking show? And right then and then it was over. Yeah. And he said that was his $40 million mistake. Yeah. But Tay Leone, she ended up being like uh, somebody who you... Uh, I had a... Uh, uh, Tay Leone and I, during the course of making that pilot, fell in love with each other. And... Right after the pilot, we uh, was a little snag in that because I was married at the time. 
but the uh, but after that we did uh, we did move in together. We lived together for a year, all the way through the first season of that show. And she was like my muse. I mean, I was I would have done anything. I was stay up for till six o'clock in the morning every night, just because I didn't want her going out there with anything but absolutely first rate material. Cause someone I you know I, I I loved and I wanted to take care of. Sometimes you have actors and you just go, you know, I, I really couldn't care less whether, <laughs> whether they uh, love this line or not. But with someone you care about, you know, you go, I want to make everything just super for them. I want to make everything easy and funny, and I want them to feel good about themselves. And that was a great experience. You know, I had, I had a love affair and a television show that I really liked, and uh, uh, they took that away from me too. What advice do you have for the young performer, actor, comedian out there who's trying to get to the next level and be somebody like a Tom Hanks or a Jay Moore that's cast in one of your shows that you created and to get to the next level? And what advice do you also have for the person out there who wants to be or is working their way up to be an executive in this business on the creative side as a showrunner, creator, writer, to get to the level that they need to get to at the top of the heap? Well, I mean, there's two really pretty easy answers to, to each one of those. The best route that I've seen towards being a successful performer in this town is, uh, is the improv groups, is uh, uh, Groundlings, Upright Citizens. Um, those are places where people, not only just from the A-teams of those groups, but the, but the B-teams and two, uh, I mean, also are pulled out constantly. And not only that, you learn shit, and you learn it really fast. That's what I'd say to a performer is get involved in, that ki and in uh, those kind of groups. And besides, the, it'll never not serve you knowing how to do improvisation. To a writer, I would say, I see so many people in this town who write one script and then shop it for two years. And that's just ridiculous. If you're a writer, you've got to write. So write one script, shop it for a week, and then put the next piece of paper in the typewriter. That shows how old I am. <laughs> but turn on the computer and start writing the next piece. And then shop that, and you'll get better each time you write one. And eventually, one will hit. And you know what's great when one hits and you've got, like, four others behind it? Those other scripts become hot, too. And you've already written them, and you can sell them. But, but just don't sit on a script as if you had the only idea that anybody in town ever had because ideas are a dime a dozen, and unless you can execute, you're just not going to work in this town. My next guest was a big part of my career in the early 80s in the comedy boom in Boston where he was one of the top comedians and political satirists working not only in that town but in the country. He co-founded the Ding Ho Comedy Club, which was a famous Chinese restaurant near Inman Square, Cambridge, where he produced comedy shows through his banner of constant comedy. And he produced shows with performers such as Stephen Wright, Paula Poundstone, Bob Cat Goldthwaite, Jimmy Tingle, Lenny Clark, Dennis Leary, and the late Kevin Meek. Crimin's satirical writing and comedy routines focused on the need for political and social change. 
He has made a number of film and television appearances, including the documentary When Stand Up Stood Out, as well as the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour and the HBO Young Comedians All-Star Reunion. He released two very popular albums, Strange Bedfellows and Kill the Messenger. He shot his first and only hour special produced by Louis C.K. entitled Whatever Threatens You in Lawrence, Kansas. And his life and work in comedy and politics were the subjects of a documentary. Were the and his life and work in comedy and politics were the subjects of a documentary entitled Call Me Lucky, a very powerful film documenting his survival of sex abuse as a child and showcasing his later exploits, becoming an anti-pedophilia activist where he began going to Congress and testifying about pedophilia on the internet and how laws and child abuse images needed to be enforced, which eventually led AOL to shut down the chat rooms dedicated to pedophilia and child abuse images. This man was a very, very powerful figure in the comedy community and really had a full circle life where he was a tortured soul, but he turned it in some of the greatest comedy that you could ever see. I hope you enjoy this. I know I did. Barry Crimmins. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career <laughs> well, to the next level. Well, oh, man, my biggest disappointment. Uh... Well, I got to tell you, probably my biggest, biggest disappointment was we started something that was pretty hip and, and kind of underground. We were like, the original comedy clubs were alternative, you know. Mm -hmm. And then when they kind of boiled it down to something that could be this corporate thing you could sell shares in, it was just, I just never dug the, uh, the way they do comedy. They take it, often the least talented certainly the least experienced person and that's who sets the tone for the show and then somebody else and then maybe something you know and i did these shows where like like clearly this idiot on before me is trying to make it hard for me to follow them and it's like it's not hard to do yeah you can do that you know it's funny uh you know uh, charlie parker can't follow metallica you know, it doesn't mean Charlie Parker can't play the horn. It means, you know, it's tough to fall, to play a horn when everybody's deaf. So uh, that would be my biggest disappointment that, that comedy clubs weren't a little hipper. But I got, I got, a, I got, I have a plan. I'm gonna make, I'm gonna go on one last production thing before I'm done. Next, I've got a couple of things I got to do. But the next, like, new open-ended idea I have has to do with how comedy is presented and how everybody's involved in it. And I don't mean to knock the hosts of show or whatever, but I mean, they often just ratchet that common denominator to the pit. And then, you know, now we'd like to bring up a political satirist. I can't even say satirist, you know, he's a satirist. I'm gonna come out and do a little satire for you. So what advice do you have for the young artist who's coming up 
and who might be from a small town in upstate uh, right, New York right. or somewhere who's been through some horrible tragedies in their life and how can they fuel their selves and their career to the next level based on what you always looked for and talent and what you saw in all these great people. What is it about those people that you think is the best words of wisdom to help you be that kind of person like you or like Stephen or like Paula right. or like Bob or like all these great, great people. Or like Barry. Or um, like Barry Crimmins. Cats. All right. Barry Cats. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a great artist. Uh, but you facilitate them. And that's a great art. Um, uh, well, if we just want to talk comedy... I would say learn your craft. Uh, comedy, learn your craft. The first thing you need to learn how to do is take the stage. I can't believe I see these guys do national TV shots and they come and go, how you doing? Like, that's a rhetorical question to the nation. You know, you're not focusing them in. On it. Like, you just got introduced as a funny guy. Walk out and be funny. Bang! Take the stage. That's platinum that time when they first walk out there. If you're fun, I've always tried to have something very concise and funny and often is as much to do with any, you know, like, oh, he can tell he's on the same. It's hot here, too. You know, like, you know, something that relates to them and you just bang and you get them that way. And that's walking in and that's some kind of sales technique, I guess. And I want to interject here, but I want you to lose your point of thought. I think what Barry's alluding to, instead of how you doing, if you got to say something to make yourself feel comfortable make a statement great being here i was over yeah. at this place the other day right. let them know you're happy to be there or let them know if you have to feel comfortable that way but never ask a question to right, start off right, okay right. keep going with yeah, your thought right. exactly but exactly and it's like how you doing hey or just even hello philadelphia well, they know they're in philadelphia you know i mean if you're a huge act yeah say hello Philadelphia but otherwise you're some guy they never heard of but they said you're really funny go out and be really funny that's all do your job you know take the stage but that's platinum and you get so much credit for that up front you you feel it accruing with an audience you know like okay that's why I I I've always been able to, you know, kind of like, now I'm giving a speech and you people are putting up with it, you know, because I was funny for a long time. Uh, so that's that. As far as, you know, they they try to tell you you can do anything you want to do. What they don't want you to know is that's the truth, you know. The people that are doing the most amazing things I know didn't take no for an answer. If you can be talked out of it, then you shouldn't do it. But if you can't, you know, stay on it and whatever, you know. Look at you. Play it against Sam's. To, you know, come on, man. You're the, the best. I mean, you're the best example of that. You just had an idea and you put it together. You realized the deal. Come on, let's get the logo up again. <laughs> <laughs> you realized the deal and you made it happen. That's, uh, you know, that's inspirational. And, and, and from a kid, you know, and again, I, you know, all power to your mother for sticking up for you, man. It's good for her, you know. Uh, I, there's so many people. There's people I deal with whose parents dropped the ball, and I actually talk to the parents, and they feel bad about it, but they miss things. You, um, she, 
she created a situation where you could tell her anything and you did. And that's why it's so that's so much more stable than the implied contract that a lot of kids get. So that's, you know, you're not it was a terrible thing that happened to you, but it was, it was processed correctly, you know. So uh and then to think, you know, you and I are just like the two berries. <laughs> <laughs> just like, you know, like, yeah, like the Patty Duke show. You can't, you know, it just has to mean an awful lot to you. But uh, really understand, you know, on a cer certain conscious level, you're not that interesting, but what you've got to offer is interesting. What you really have is interesting. But it's not like, we sort of live in an era where people can broadcast the fact that they're putting their shoes on, you know? And it's sort of like, okay, wow, you put shoes on, and you're putting on your feet. That's amazing, you know? But if you really got something to say, the interesting thing is everybody thinks that what you have to say is planned in advance. The trick is, is getting yourself to the point where, you know, you're just using the audience or whatever it is, is, you know, like, I don't have to have a therapist. I get to do this here. But you don't know what you're going to say or what you're going to do, really, if you're really an artist, until it's like you're on the spot and you got to come up with it, you know? So I would say put yourself on the spot. And, and if you quit, that's your choice. And I understand because it's a really stupid you know, I mean, you you know how what the percentages of people who filter through. Like, you know, I'm like a relative pauper, but I've got to, people go, oh, you're so successful lately. And they go, I've been doing what I want every day since I was 18 years old. Like, are you kidding me? I, I thought that was successful. I didn't have to answer to some shithead and sit in a cubicle and, and get some middle manager bully pushing me around that I would see him pushing somebody else around and I end up getting arrested for choking him or something. So I'm very lucky, you know. Uh, but you can do anything you want. You can if you got the guts to do it. And the, and and then the follow through to continue to do it. And that's what you've done. You know, you're so, like... You're one of my, you're on that list of people like... There's friends and people I know from a long time ago It's just like... You know, he's so successful. If I track him down, I'll think I'm looking for something. <laughs> and I wasn't. I always wanted to go, tremendous. You did that? Like, and again and again, your name would turn up like, holy crap. And then people are going like, hey, uh, then people try, when people try to get to you through me, I would go, no, I never talked to me, but, and, but I would be thinking, I wish I was talking to him. But, you know, and I probably could get a hold of them for this clown, but I'm not going to <laughs> because, you know, I, but that's how I, I find part of how I realized the magnitude to which you had uh, uh, elevated yourself. And it's because you did so much to help other, I mean, like you've been a major contributor to the American comedy scene. And I thank you. And I don't know why. Sometimes you're left out of some of the Boston stories because I'll tell you what I say. They, you should talk to the cats, you know, because that's a whole other angle. I didn't know what the deal was. I like to go over and play your club sometimes, you know, I'm always happy to. 
Um, I made the mistake of not doing when stand-up stood out. I just felt like I didn't have what to offer to them. And that was a big mistake because I I love that. Yeah, I wish you did. If you're getting to the next level, if you're getting to the alleged next level, you're sort of not noticing it. Because the next level is higher and busier. And so you're just busy dealing with all this stuff. Like, I'm, I'm as... Man, I've never been so busy, so I must be doing okay. But uh, I I wish I were this busy 20 years ago, and I wish I. But it is what it is. You got to show up when they ask you, and so they're asking, and uh, call me lucky. That's all. It's a little plug, a little product placement there. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far, you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a -a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. My next guest was a man who I loved dearly. And I just went to his memorial and it was packed with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. I think to myself, if I die, if there's going to be a handful of people there, this man had close to a thousand and a huge theater with people eulogizing him like Judd Apatow, Mel Brooks, Dick Van Dyke, Norman Lear. Incredible. He's probably most famous for producing the movie Man on the Moon, executive producing a television show that changed the face of the genre that was starred in by his own client, Seinfeld. Ladies and gentlemen, I know you're going to enjoy this guy. I could listen to him over and over again. And his influence on me changed my life forever george shapiro i feel that the world of comedy uh especially when you're dealing with you know comedians uh i i i uh, draw the analogy to falling in love uh you see a comedian for the first time and he tickles you like i mean when i saw andy kaufman and uh, so unusual and and jerry seinfeld and uh and, and there's another comedian, Dennis Wolfberg, who unfortunately oh. died early. He was a, one of my best friends in the in the world. I just helped his I helped put his kids through through college, and with the help of Jerry, who did a ben, Jerry and Jay, Jay Leno, you know, did this, and uh, Paul Reiser and George Wallace did this beautiful benefit to start him off, and I finished him off on the career. They all graduated. Uh, I just want you all in the audience. To Google, go on YouTube, Dennis Wolfberg, one of the most unique and engaging and fun and exciting voices in comedy. And I always remember one thing about Dennis Wolfberg. He was a 
a comedian who planted. I don't want you to lose that thought where you're going. Please don't lose that thought. I got it. He was a comedian that planted his feet and stood in front of the mic stand and the mic rarely took it out of the mic and he had this thing which was amazing if you can imagine holding a hairbrush or a microphone he take the part of his hand where the thumb is in between the forefinger and he'd press it against the side of the mic and then he'd take the other hand to do the same thing and he'd have his hands out folded over one another prone straight out and he talk into the mic like that like he was making like the wings of a swan or something <laughs> That's right. and it was normally i would tell any comedian in the world do not create a distraction on stage with your hands or the microphone or the mic stand but it was his signature kind of thing and he used to wear like a Celtics jacket a lot of times. And I guess I related to him about that. He was incredible. And uh, the fact that you managed him, uh, to use an expression that I've heard before, uh, before I heard that, I had a tremendous amount of respect for you. After I heard that, you're my hero. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I, I, apropos to what I, I was saying, when you see a comic, it's like falling in love because you're laughing and it reaches you on this visceral level. And uh, also, when you're, as you know, if you're going to manage a comedian, you're going to see that comedian a thousand times. You're going to go to a lot of shows. So you really have to be in love. It's just like when you get married to the right woman, you might, you, let, you allow her to repeat herself, you know. But I, I mean, I still cherish going to Jerry Seinfeld's show. I still laugh at the little nuances he adds. And it's, it's just... And I told Dennis that, you know, luckily I had the, because he died in his 40s from cancer. He had melanoma. And, and uh, I was able to tell him it's like falling in love because it, it's such a level of, 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 of heartbeat and, and uh, love, you know. Because, you know, comedy, when you laugh that much, it's one of the greatest feelings in the history of the world. I mean, I, I mean I'm attracted to him. I mean, some people don't have that connection. That's why I feel very fortunate. And I've always just followed my, my passion with who I want to work with. And I was very lucky over the years, you know, working with people, you know, like Carl Reiner and Jerry and, you know, and, and Andy Kaufman and, and, and Dennis. And it's, uh, it's just a, a, a joy. And that's why I say, what a business. Have you ever represented anyone in your career that your instincts told you, you know... I probably shouldn't represent this person because I don't feel that love, but I feel they could be really successful or will be successful or are successful. So I am running a business with Howard. Let's go forward and represent this person. Well, I'm trying to think. We were offered some people. Actually, I mean, I don't think I remember... You know, signing someone that I really didn't have a feeling for. Like, uh, I don't want to talk about this, but, you know, when we went into business, maybe I won't mention names. Maybe I will. I have to figure it out. You know, when Howard and I went into business, uh, we, 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 you know, when you work with a big agency, there's a lot of asshole clients because, you know, you're representing selling two, 300 clients at a big agency like William Morris or ICM. When I came to California, I gave him two shots. Got went it. in the mailroom and he got impatient, you know, with the salary of when it was bumped up to 40. 
he was that was our first race from 38 to 40 then he just got impatient and he, he left and I, I when I came to California I, I started a rumor that I was being transferred from uh, New York to California because the business was coming out here all the production so I came out to California they listened you know somehow it, it caught in the atmosphere that I was coming to California and I when I got settled in California, I, I, I got a job for Howard in California. Got so. it. So what happens is when you're going from the mailroom to being an assistant, you're working on somebody's desk. Normally, it can be a year. It can be as many as three years. Some people have gone longer before they get a chance to be an agent. And when you become an agent, normally what happens is you start by being a covering agent for a lot of clients, like uh, George is saying, it could be as many as 100 to 300 clients. You're looking out for different things or doing yeah. whatever. And then you start signing your own people as you go, but you sometimes you need to get approval before you do it. And then that first client does something that you sign, then they start giving you more autonomy. Exactly. Exactly. So when... I, I, okay, I'll tell you one story. When we shook hands, I said, "No assholes in our." Uh, if we're gonna, okay. One, I was a young agent, just got out of the mailroom. I went, I went to you know Sadie Brown's secretarial school. Bernie Brosin told me to go there because you'll have to learn shorthand to become an assistant. Uh, you know, and, and you're a floating assistant to different agents when their assistant is sick and everything else. So I got when I finally got out of the mailroom, and I was like a very young agent. One of the assignments I had was on a variety show, and Buddy Hackett was booked on that variety show. And uh, um, it was, and it was this taping. I was, I was looking after him, covering him, you know, uh, uh, and it was on a Sunday shoot. And uh, I was down there and I went to, met him in his dressing room and Buddy Hackett said, there's no telephone in here. I have to have a telephone or else I'm not doing the show. I always get a telephone in my dressing room because it was like a temporary kind of a setup there. So I, I, got, I, I said, I'll, I'll get it for you. I said, you have to do the show. Uh, he said, I'm going to go for a walk. I made a call to the telephone company. It's an emergency. I got the producers okay, you know, to have them put the phone in. And and uh, and he said, I'm going for a walk. And when I come back, that phone is here. Or I'm off the show. Now, I, there, there's the end of my job. There's the end of my career that I worked for, 13 months in, in the mailroom. And then, you know, like a, a year and a half floating, being an, an assistant. So we, I'm walking with him. My heart is pounding because it could end my career, and I'm just a kid. So we come back, and, and, and there's a, a man from the phone company wiring it up, finishing the wiring. So I'm taking a breath, and he said, there, there better be a dial tone. So he picks it up, and there was a dial tone. He said, okay, and then he ripped the phone off the wall. So I don't think I would want to be Buddy's manager. Now— Why he, do you think oh, he did I had, that? I had a— I have no idea because he... No, but you've been in the business a long time. You've known a lot of different artists. Why do you think Buddy did that to you? I have no idea. I really don't. I mean, he, from what I gather, he was kind of uh, harsh, putting it politely, to a lot of people around him. Also, later on, when I was a full agent, I was working with the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, packaging the show, and uh, <clears throat> I was at... Uh, this this disco uh, with him and we were shooting pool and he was really derogatory towards William Morris and everything else because I worked my ass off and I was very proud of what we did and he said buy this well, yeah he's with William Morris and stinks and all that and, and I had a puke acoustic in my hand I said I'm going to smash you right in the temple and put it in your life so then he said you know you, you have a lot of guts you know he sort of softened up 
But I, but I hated him. Yeah. So he was testing you. I, I don't know. You know, yeah, he was probably. So he ended up liking you, but you ended up hating him because he made your life miserable. Except there's a punchline to this thing, and I mean a punchline. John Gary was one of our clients. He was a singer, a male singer. They co-headlined, I think it was a Sahara. Him and Buddy. Buddy Hackett and him. Now, Buddy Hackett, for those of you who don't know, which is not well documented, Buddy Hackett was the most successful comedian of the early 50s and was making about $175,000 a week in Las Vegas yes. during that time. Yes, so I went to see him, hating him, and I laughed so hard. <laughs> this is the power of comedy, ladies and gentlemen. I swear, I, I went with hatred in my heart, and he made me laugh. I fell off my chair laughing, and uh, you know, and, and I felt better about our relationship because that is an enhancement of your life when you laugh from your gut, from your heart. It was so amazing. It was absolutely amazing. How great a comedian do you have to be to make somebody laugh who hates you? Yeah, exactly. The power of comedy, my boy. And I'm fortunate because I became friends with Buddy at the end of his life when we did a show called Action together in 1999-2000 with Jay Moore and Ileana Douglas. And, and Buddy, I don't know why, he took me under his wing and he was always good to me. He never he was derogatory. He loved you and hated me. That's the truth. He loved you and hated me. <laughs> there was only one time where I saw what you saw. I was at the Upfronts in New York in 1999, and he's in the dressing room. Now, the Upfronts are when the networks make the announcements for the television shows, and they just bring the cast out, and then you you uh, leave, and you just take a bow, but they want to announce people. And he was wearing this nice suit, and I just went up to him. People do as friends do. tie was a little bit off, and I just went to reach for his tie and straightened it out. And he looked at me with that way he talked, and he was like, don't ever fucking touch me. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> and I thought he was joking, but he wasn't joking. But then a minute later, he apologized. It's very important what you said, because you showed that you as a manager or an agent, how you were thrust into a young, you're a young person in the situation, you're thrust with adversity, you have a brilliant artist that's on the top of his game, you think your career is over, similarly how I think, <laughs> and you realize in the end that Buddy Hackett, and if he were alive today, he would say, I love George Shapiro. I tested him, but I loved him, and he always delivered for me. And under pressure, you delivered, you made it happen, and I think that's what everybody needs to know how important that is in that, this business. Also, the thing I like about the story is uh, the power of comedy. Uh, when someone is that funny, you know, it's like falling in love with the, with the wrong person. You know, because I, I just, uh, when you're laughing like that, it's like close to being in love, and it's... Uh, something that you feel so passionately and so deeply. Whenever you lose a comedian, when you're in the business, you lose a part of you. When we lost this guy, it was way, 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 way too soon. And it felt like it could have been prevented. He was a guy who every comedian loved, every comedian laughed with, and every comedian loved seeing him in any venue in the country or the world.
He appeared on such television shows as Late Night with Conan O'Brien, Jimmy Kimmel Live, Late Friday, Premium Blend, Late Show with Craig Kilborn, The Best Damn Sports Show, The Burn with Jeffrey Ross, The Kroll Show, At Midnight, and was a regular panelist who killed on Chelsea lately. He also did a documentary around his own life produced by Zach Galifianakis for HBO. Additionally, he was featured in movies such as Jesus is Magic, I Am Comic, Due Date, Funny People, The Hangover, and Hangover Part Two. But most importantly, he's a guy who reminded us how fragile life is and how challenging it is, not just for the average comedian, but also the extraordinary comedian as he took his own life at such an early age. I'll never forget him, Brody Stevens. The other night I go to the comedy store and I hear that you're going on to close the show in the big room. Right. So Brody got off stage and he did his entire set walking through the main crowd. Then he went up to the upper level, walked through there and did comedy. And people loved him, and he killed. And I, I want to preface that. Killed. And I loved watching him. <laughs> okay. But. Here we go. I would say that there was little effort and preparation for that show at all. It was you just kind of saying, go on, let me fucking see what happens here. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to open with this. Then I'm going to go second. I'm doing this one. I'm following that with there. Here's the tag here, going here, down to this bit. I'm going right here with a chunk of four minutes on this. That's segueing to this. And then I'm going to close with this piece like this and right. say thank you, good night. But you still killed. But I want to know how it's possible when you're given the honor. And I'm not going toe-to-toe -to -toe with you. I'm just okay. asking you. You have the honor of closing a show at one of the most prestigious rooms in the world. Right. And then it was like, I'm on here. They bummed me. This person didn't respect the time. They told me I was going on here. I didn't go on there. So you're airing all your dirty laundry for the crowd uh -huh. that you're pissed off about. When the crowd doesn't give a shit whether somebody got inserted on or the person booked you at the wrong time or it went long or a waitress did. No one gives a shit. They just want to see comedy. They paid money to see comedy and you're telling them your dirty laundry and what happened to you that night. It's funny to me and the crowd laughed, but I didn't see the preparation of the set and I want to know why. Okay. Can I explain? Yes. Okay. That show, that late night spot, I've been doing it now for close to three years. When I go in there, I am prepared. I am mentally prepared. I prepare for that spot from the minute I wake up in the morning. So I am totally zoned in on that spot. Now, you saw me. I'm there. I know what these crowds go through. I know exactly what they go through. I can feel them. I see where they're sitting. I know what they've been through. I know who was on before me. That particular night, you saw me. It was a Friday night. That show, you know, you talk about preparation. You can't prepare for that. You can only prepare 
to be open-minded, knowing what you're going to get. When you talk about jokes, ding, 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 ding. I go in the original room last night. I do my 15 minutes. I have my beginning. I have my middle. I have my end. Boom, 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 boom. Original room. Why do you think I'm bringing this up? Okay, well, hold on. I was there. So the original room, middle, I know what I'm doing. Opening, middle, end. I usually do okay with that. The closing spot in that main room, you can't prepare. They've seen every single joke. That particular night, you were, and I've done it for over three years. I wouldn't waste my time. They wouldn't let me go on. Danny, the sound guy, he's been there for 20 years. He could easily say, cut it, cut it. They let me do an hour. I only did 40-something minutes that night. I know that room at that moment on a Friday and Saturday, like the back of my hand now. So that particular night, you were there, which was this week. That show, Neil Brennan canceled. My spot was at 1230. Might have even been 1245. Neil Brennan canceled. The show got pushed forward. I was at the Laugh Factory. Danny doing my spot there. Ding, ding, ding. Danny calls me. The sound guy says, try and get here early because there's going to be a full room. But I didn't get that call. I'm just telling you about that particular night. So I get there. Then they put on Jesus Trejo. Trejo. He went on before me. So what I'm saying is I went on that crowd. Normally when I go on, the show kind of like trickles down and then I go and do my stuff. This particular show that you were at, there was no trickle down. So I'm going up there. I still did a good job. You were laughing the whole time. You're saying he did a good job. But I went up to a show where I'm following top comedians. Now with a broken room, but broken in a sense that they were just hot because it's when I go on normally in the last three years, it's a kind of a trickle down. Then I go in. And then at that point I do my jokes. I do my crowd work. I interact with the door guys. I used to do my periscope. I used to do drumming. I still do, but it's all based on that mood. Now you walked in, you would say that particular night, do your jokes, joke, 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 joke. It wouldn't have worked. It worked a little bit, but then they get tired. The bottom line is I got an email from that night. Some guy, defense attorney guy, said you were up there wasting time. He said the same thing. You said kind of the same thing. I think you're both wrong. I have to be honest with you. I had a good set. You're smiling. This is late night. If I knew ahead of time that I'm going to have a packed house in there, of course I would prepare more. I would sit down and write my set list. But that room, 99% of the time, it's not, that's that's the 1%. And considering that's the 1%, I still did a good job. You're laughing. I got laughs. I'm just saying that that's a feel spot. I handle that spot as a jam session, the late night main room spot. Because if you handle it, I'm saying like all day, if I'm writing out my set list, you go in there, it's like I could have three people or 25 people. So I can adjust. I can do my jokes, I've gone on in there. At, you know, I can play a crowded main room and do my stuff. But for that spot where I was at, where the show was at, that specific night, I felt like that was the way to go about doing it. And I knew it was a pretty good set. Do you agree with my assessment that a small handful of people are doing their sets on stage like their fucking life depended on it, like they're rehearsing their hour special? 
Does it seem like people are more laissez-faire there? And do you understand why and what is the thought process behind why they are more laissez-faire? I'm not saying it's wrong or right or whatever. I'm just saying, I guess I'm presuming, which could be wrong, that if I'm a comedy audience member and I work hard all week long, maybe I work at a restaurant or maybe I'm a young assistant in a law firm. I'm presuming that I wanna see comedy performed in a way with the intensity that I'm seeing it on television that drove me to come here in the first place. And when I go and I see people who don't, it doesn't feel like they're trying as hard, I would think that would be detrimental to the comedy. I mean, you're going to a live comedy club. It's not what you're going to see on TV necessarily. They're going there because maybe the guy's going to be in a bad mood. Maybe the guy or gal is going to be upset that there is somebody driving slow on Laurel Canyon and I barely got here. Maybe the room temperature. You know, that's what I like about the comedy store, the freedom to go up there and be who be who you are. But of course, you want to get laughs. I mean, I won't. I'm listening for my laughs. And then when I do that original room, yeah, I'm given a professional job. I know they paid money. So me personally, I like to do the best job I can. It can't doesn't always mean that I mean, I might bail on a set list that I really want. You know, I got to do that. That's just, just the nervous entertainer professional in me. I think there's some that are like that also. Where they go, I'm not going to deviate from any of my jokes. I'm going to do that because I want to do well. So they can kind of do that sleepwalking, maybe. Or they're saying, in a selfish way, I'm doing that because I'm, you know, working towards something. Then there's other guys who are just like, I'm really just throwing it out there, seeing what's happening. And then there's guys who are like, yeah, maybe there's people who just go through the motions. You've seen so many different performers throughout your career, so many people in this business. Yeah. What advice do you have for the young performer that you see that just is starting out, thinks they might be funny, but to figure out how to get to the point where they can create these opportunities and move forward and have the kind of successes that you've had? Well, I think that goes back to stage time and jokes. It's jokes and stage time. And once you get that stage time, you get your jokes, you'll get more comfortable. And from that point, I feel like your personality will come out even more. You know, it's like you'll get on stage and maybe your personality won't be out there because you're nervous. You don't have your jokes yet. You don't have the experience. So you're they're not seeing they're, they're seeing the scared you. So you got to put those could be three years, could be six years, could be eight, could be ten. But the more you do, it, you just you you it's stage time and jokes. There's no secrets now or shortcuts. But then within that, you go, OK, there's other tricks about showing your face, being, you know, getting having somebody you work with it's good to have a partner it's good to i think with because at networking if you want to get into that like that next level of having somebody you work with but at the core for stand-up i tell the guys stage time and jokes that's the foundation and then once you get then your personality will come out once you're more comfortable i don't think there's any you can you hear guys say, I've been waiting for my, I'm writing my set. I'm waiting for that perfect moment to get up there and do it. This is an open mic. Just get that stage time. Write those jokes, stage time. See what happens after that. But then there's 
you know, you can go do the one in a million shot, too. There's all different ways, but that's my advice. My next guest is more than a legend. If legends had legends and those legends had legends and those legends had legends, you'd find the goat at the top of the mountain, the greatest of all time, looking down on everybody else and barely being able to see them. This guy is the greatest interviewer of all time in entertainment and media with over 60,000 interviews under his belt. When we lost him, we lost more than an icon. We lost a lifetime because that's what he dedicated to his entire life's work of sharing the stories of others that inspired us and the world. Larry King. I've studied you for so long and I've watched you for so long. I have absolutely no nerves at all. And normally I have had nerves when I've interviewed people before who I really hadn't uh, met before. I'll tell you why you don't need nerves. It's your microphone. It's your podcast. It's your show. You're in control. I am at the mercy of you. Why should you be nervous? I should be nervous. <laughs> like my friend Herbie says, who wrote, you can negotiate anything as comes to mind. If you owe the bank $200,000 and it's due tomorrow and you don't have it, who should be nervous? You or the bank? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that there's very few guests that when they're on your show that you feel like it's not your show. Very, very rarely. You're always in control. Even when it seems like you're not in control, you're in control. For example... Don Rickles, the late Don Rickles, one of my oldest and dearest friends, he put me on the floor. He says hello, and I'm laughing. But even though I'm laughing, and I'm banging the desk, and I'm out of control, I'm in control. In other words, it's always your base. It's always my base, no matter what. Who is the guest out of 60,000 interviews that always tried to wrestle control more professional guests don't try to wrestle control Cosby was a great guest I just interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson one of the great guests of all time they're so profound I have never Barry I have I, I guess this goes back to my childhood I'm insatiably curious insatiably curious that's why I've been doing this 61 years and I'm just as curious today as I was 61 years ago. Or back to when I was nine years old and I'd ask a bus driver, why do you want to drive a bus? I am just curious. And that curiosity comes through to the guest. So they know I care about them. And when they know I care and when they know I'm curious, you, you don't have many problems. You really don't. You have a lot of similarities to stand-up comedians. And oh, well, I do stand-up. I did a tour a couple of years ago. I speak at conventions, and I always tell stories. I never speak seriously. I just did last week the Young Presidents Organization. 
had a riot. I tell, I love making people laugh. If I hadn't been an interviewer, I'd have been a stand-up. Absolutely. There's nothing like, nothing, of all the things I do, the best time I have is when I'm doing stand-up. When you walk out on a cold stage, and they're there, and you know you're funny. You know you're funny. And if you deliver it right, you know you have good material because it's real stuff. I'm telling real stories. That moment when you come to the punchline of a joke or the punchline of a story, when you know they're going to laugh, and then they laugh, it's orgasmic. There's nothing like it. Cold stage, nothing like it. The world's best time is a stand-up comedian when you're successful and you got them going. You're having a better time than them. Buddy Hackett used to talk about the monitor, the monitor in a comedian's head when you walk out stage and you get them, but you're also saying, okay, I see that person talking over there with their boyfriend. I see the exit there. I see the doorman walking there. I see the person delivering the drink. Yeah, they, oh, it all comes in, but you try to get them. And when you get them, you feel much better. But he came on my show once and said, before I even asked a question, he said, did you hear about the guy with wooden legs that lived in an all-wooden house? They had a fire. They saved the house, but the guy burned to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> See, delivered well, that's buddy. That's funny. You know, when you know what's funny, Lenny Bruce was a great friend of mine, and he used to do a lot of things about what's funny and what's not funny. What did he say was funny and not funny? Montana is funny. <laughs> New York is not funny. New Jersey is funny. Atlanta is not funny. Milwaukee is funny. Chicago's not. <laughs> Now, you don't, can't even explain it, but it, it's, it's truth in its idiom. It is what it is. Swiss cheese is funny. American cheese is not. I don't know why, because you could have said the reverse. Lenny used to do this on Jewish. What's Jewish and what's not, you know? Uh, Nebraska's not Jewish. Even if you're Jewish and you live in Nebraska, you're not Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the other reasons I see you as similarities as a stand-up comic is that comedians, they go on the road. Sometimes they do three shows on a Saturday night. And sometimes the third show, they have more energy and they're better on the third show, or at least they're equal to the first no. show. And I think what's always been fascinating watching you, and if you don't mind me saying... You're like the Denzel Washington of talk show hosts. There's not one frame where it seems like you take a moment off. I'm always in the moment. I, I, I can be dead tired. So whether I'm going on the air, like this morning I had to get up early. I was supposed to be in New York and I wasn't this week. So Neil deGrasse Tyson was scheduled for noon in New York. I had to be there at nine this morning. 45 minutes away, our studios had had breakfast. I got up earlier than usual. So when I got there, I'm dead tired. I'm really tired. When they were putting the makeup on, I was sleeping. 
Then I sit down. I seal Neil deGrasse Tyson by satellite. And the moment that light goes on, bang, bang, I'm right into it. It's the same if I'm standing on a stage and talking or addressing a group. Something kicks in. That red light on that camera, which I've been looking at for a lot of years, seven decades, still energizes me. It still gets me going. Like I asked Milton Berle if he ever is going to retire, and he said, retire to what? <laughs> I will die on the air. I, I, I just know it. That's the way I'm going to go. I just, I'll be asking a question <laughs> and down. And, and it'll make the news, you know, page three. I asked Neil Tyson this morning if he's afraid to die. And he said he's only afraid to die if he feels he hasn't accomplished what he wanted to accomplish when he's dying. I, I'm afraid to die because I'm too curious. In other words, how the hell are the Dodgers going to do, right? I don't want to die before I find out how they're going to do. But then I don't want to die before the elections. Who's going to be elected? But then the Super Bowl. But then <laughs> it's next year's baseball and the National Hockey League and the NBA. And who's going to be the next president? I don't want to die because I like being around. I, I was thinking for a while about being frozen. So I'd come back. So my wife said to me, well, you'll come back in 200 years, you won't know anybody. I said, I'll make new friends. <laughs> I'll put up with it. I like living. I've been, I've had every known, look, I've had a heart attack, quintuple bypass surgery, prostate cancer, radiation, type two diabetes, and they caught lung cancer early. First stage, they took out 20% of a lung. My urologist was checking me the other day, and he looked at all of my records from Cedar sinai and he said to me, if I showed this to someone, this person is dead. This, I'm looking at your medical records. You are not alive. So what keeps me going? Modern pharmaceuticals. I don't deny that. Modern pharmaceuticals have played a big part. And my love of life. All right, that wraps up part one of two. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. I'll never forget these guys. I hope you won't either. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project that I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.